So we're in Matthew chapter 10, and it's been almost, um, it's been a little over a month as we went through Matthew 9, so I want to do a brief review. Matthew was written by Levi, uh, and he was a Jewish tax collector who was basically, he was a sympathizer of the Romans to be able to take taxes and work with them. He was greedy. He was motivated by money. And Jesus came into his life, said, follow me, and changed the course and direction of his life. And he wrote this letter that we're working through right now, this book, to talk about Jesus as Messiah. And so what Matthew does in chapters 1 through 9 is he lays out his qualifications. Actually, the whole book he does that, but what we've been covering is these qualifications. He starts off with his genealogical qualifications to be the king, the Messiah, the prophesied one in chapter 1. Then he goes through his um, divine qualifications. God himself said, this is my son in chapter 3. His spiritual qualifications in chapter 4 where he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In chapter 5, 6, and 7, his theological qualifications where he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount and he exposits the law the way it was supposed to be uh, practiced and applied. And then in uh, chapter 8 and 9, it's a series of three miracles and a teaching on discipleship as he begins training his disciples. Actually, the training took place when he went up on the mountain, but he's continued this training process. And one of the things he did is what any good teacher does, you know, if you've ever been around good teachers, is they teach, then they model, and then they let you try it. And they debrief you. And that's exactly what Jesus did with the disciples. And in chapter 8 and 9, we see him healing people. He cleansed a leper. Why? Because it was prophesied that that would happen. And there was even a court in the temple for cleansed lepers that had never had a Jewish person in it. And they were looking forward to the day when Messiah would come when somebody would go in there. And so that's why Jesus said in chapter 8, He said, listen, when He cleansed a guy, you go straight to the temple. He said, don't go to talk to anybody else. Go to the temple. Show yourself to the priest. Why? He was declaring Himself as Messiah. And that's what Matthew's bringing out. And He went on to heal other people. He healed a centurion servant. And this Gentile centurion comes up to Him, or He doesn't even approach Him. He sends people on His behalf. And they, they, Jesus said, I haven't seen a great faith like this in all of Israel. And so Gentiles were a part of it from the beginning. And, and what Matthew's bringing out, this is not just for the Jewish people. This salvation is for everyone. And then he gives a teaching on discipleship. And it's interesting that the first teaching he gives is that the heart of the person who's going to follow Jesus has to be authentic. Because three guys come up to him and say, I want to follow. And he says, no, you don't. You don't really want to follow. You've got these other priorities. You've got to understand that if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to leave everything. In fact, he says in Luke 9, what? Anyone who wishes to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, die daily to himself, and follow me. And so Jesus lays that out. And then these other three miracles he does over the sea where he calms the sea and, and he shows that he's Lord over the physical universe. Then he casts out demons to show he's Lord over the supernatural uh, universe. And then, remember what he does? He heals a paralytic. And he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And when he says that to the paralytic, the, the religious leaders go crazy and go, who is this guy? Only God can forgive sins. He says, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say 
get up and walk. And he said, so you know that I have the authority to say your sins are forgiven? Take up your mat and walk. And the guy walked. He healed him. And on the heels of that, we see Matthew telling his autobiography in one verse. He said, I was sitting at the tax table. Jesus came up and said, follow me, and I followed him. And then the next thing we know, Matthew takes him to his house. He has all his friends over, and the Pharisees go crazy, and Jesus gives this teaching again on discipleship that, listen, I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinful people, which is great news for all of us, right? Aren't we happy that that's, that's why he came? And, and so he then goes from there to the last three miracles in this triad. And it's really, we see a miracle within a miracle. And then he healed blind men and then he healed a deaf mute. And the deaf mute and the blind man almost seem anticlimactic after you raise somebody from the dead. But there was a reason that Matthew put that in there. And we looked at what happened in the, the healing of Jairus' daughter, who was a synagogue leader from Capernaum. And we tied that in. I don't know for you guys who weren't here. Uh, this is interesting, uh, Amos, because we were in Capernaum. Chuck, you were in Capernaum. And we touched on this when the, the centurion built the synagogue, he built the synagogue in, in, in Capernaum that we are able to see the ruins of. And then the elders that went from that synagogue went to Jesus and brought him back, and they would have heard Jesus say, what? I've not seen a greater faith like this in all Israel. Then Jairus was the ruler of that synagogue. So Jairus goes defying the Pharisees, defying the religious leaders who said, remember what they were saying? Anybody associated with Jesus is going to be kicked out of the synagogue. He didn't care. Why? His daughter was dying. So he goes, in the midst of him going, what happens? There's this lady who's bleeding, who's not allowed to go into the synagogue, who's unclean. She touches Jesus and healed, and Jesus gets into a discussion with this lady who's unclean, and Jairus is sitting there nervous because he wants him to go heal his daughter. And so you have this clash of cultures. And Jesus shows his compassion because he had time to not just heal the woman physically, he healed her spiritually. He called her daughter. Only woman in Scripture that he referred to as daughter, which meant she was a believer. And then he goes and he heals the daughter. He raised her from the dead. And then Matthew throws these last two little exclamation points by healing blind men and a mute person that goes all the way back to Isaiah. Remember who's reading this? Jewish people. They would have remembered those prophecies. So then, after that, this last teaching on discipleship, Jesus says, listen, these people are like sheep without a shepherd, taking them back to Jeremiah 23, taking them back to Ezekiel 34, to those prophets where, where God says through these prophets, hey, my people are, are helpless. They're like scattered like sheep. They don't have a shepherd because the shepherds feed themselves, and when my sheep are sick, they don't take care of them. And so Jesus is kind of drawing them. That was a rabbi teaching tool. They would give a part of a verse or they would go back to an Old Testament thought without completing it so that the students would have to go there because their minds would go there. And then Jesus said, listen, pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. And that was where we left off. And then we go into chapter 10 and we see in chapter 10 that the disciples are the answers to their very own prayers. Have you ever thought about that in your own life? I mean, how maybe if you start praying for 
God to move in the lives of unbelievers around you, He may use you to be the answer to your own prayer. If we would simply pray to the Lord of the harvest. When we look at this passage today, uh, I want you, there, there's six principles, and I'm going to give you the principles up front, and then we're going to go read the passage and go back and look at them. It's a lot. I know it's a lot, so I'm going to repeat them. But the first, th- these are principles for ministry. Okay? What's interesting is the disciples moved from being disciples to apostles from verse 1 to verse 2. They moved from being learners to sent ones. And so we're going to look at that. And and these principles, even though none of us in here can be technically an apostle with a big A, but what we can be is a little A apostle, a sent one. We're all sent from Jesus if we're His children. We're sent to do the Great Commission. We're sent to, to be people that are discipling other people. And so the first principle of ministry God reveals is, one, we are chosen, we are called, and commissioned by God to make disciples. Now, I was never taught that growing up in church. What I was taught is, if I don't trust Jesus, I'm going to die and go to hell. That was pretty much the extent of what I was taught. But we are chosen. We are called and commissioned to go make disciples by God if we're in the family of God. It's not the job of the pastor. It's not the job of the church staff. It is the job of every believer to be either a disciple maker or a disciple in training. You're one of the two. And so we're going to look at that here. Second, God also reveals that we have a focused mission. When I was in the FBI... We were going through the firearms training. One thing they set out the range. They said, you know what? If you don't aim at the target, you're not going to hit the target. It's impossible to hit the target if you're not aiming at the target. And too often in the Christian life, we just go along. We don't even know what our focus is. I bet right now, if I sent a piece of paper to everybody in the room uh, at the same time, and I said, okay, I want you to write down what you think the focus of the Christian life should be for us. I would have 20 different answers. Because there's not seemingly a centralized message. At least, I've been in a lot of churches in my life, and I hear so many different thrusts. So many different things. Some people stress evangelism. Some people stress discipleship. Some people stress small groups. Now I'm going to ask you this question. If you simply went to church on a Sunday morning and sat and worshipped and got the teaching and that's all you did, would you be discipled doing that? Would you really be discipled if that's all you did? You went and sat on the pew with your family and you got that. But for a lot of people... When you talk to leaders, they think that that's discipleship. That is a segment or a part, but it's a small part. An integral part of discipleship is accountability. And how much accountability is there when you, you may not be at church for three months and nobody even calls to say, hey, Dave, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? Are you okay? Is everything okay? That. I know people who've actually had spouses die and they never received a call when they stopped going because they didn't want to go to church anymore after their spouse died and nobody called to find out why. They just assumed they went somewhere else because we live in a culture that there's really no community at all. 
And, and so for there to be accountability, one, we need to know that we have a focus. And, and part of that focus ensures there's accountability. When I was in the Marine Corps, I had a curriculum I had to go through as a pilot to be trained to go into battle. And everything was leading me toward that. Do you realize that everything in your life God is using to lead you to be a disciple maker? Period. We're all disciple makers. We're, we're in training. We're either doing it or we're in training to do it. And so He is letting us know through this passage today that we should have a focused mission. They had a focused mission and we should have a focused mission. And we're going to talk about that. Second or third, we have a clear and simple message. It's not complex. It's not complex at all. It's a clear and simple message. For the disciples, it was the kingdom of heaven is near. But what were they really saying in saying that? They were saying that Jesus is Messiah. The Messiah is here. For us, if we went out and started saying the Messiah has come, people wouldn't have a clue what we're talking about. But everybody knows they struggle with emptiness. Everybody knows they struggle with loneliness. Everybody knows that there's something deep inside of them that longs to know the Creator. How did they get here? What's their purpose? And so how do we address that? Well, we, we share the gospel with people. That's our message. And so we'll talk about that. Number four, we carry authentic credentials. Real Authentic credentials. When I was an FBI agent, when you graduate, that's when you get your credentials. And it's a stamp. It's got an FBI seal on it. And on one side, it's got your picture and that FBI over the picture. And on the other uh, side of your credentials is your badge. You can't reproduce those. You can try. People have tried. But you can't reproduce those. They are made in one place and they are held in one place. And, and so... You don't get them until you complete training. But when you complete training, you get them and they tell you when you go out to talk to somebody on official business, the first thing you do is you show them your credentials. Well, for a lot of Christians today, when we go out and we try to talk about Jesus, there are no credentials there. And Jesus tells the guys here, he goes, go out, heal, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, do all this stuff. Now, I don't think anybody in this room has raised somebody from the dead. I don't believe. I doubt anybody in this room has actually healed somebody by placing their hand on them or had seen them healed as a result of putting their hand on them. But we can change lives. We can have compassion. We can be unselfish. Those are credentials that I see laid out here that Jesus does, and we're going to talk about that. The fifth thing is we display a confident faith. We display a confident faith or trust in God as our manager. God is the one that manages our resources, not us. And, and then finally, the last thing is that we focus on the receptive we focus on the receptive, those who are willing to receive, and we're wise stewards of our resources. And so, let's read the passage, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about these. So let's read in chapter 10, verse 1. Follow along with me if you got your Bible. And He called to Him His twelve disciples, and He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. 
First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Simon the Cananean was also called Simon the Zealot. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. You received without paying, give without paying. Acquire no gold, no silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, then let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. May God bless the reading of his word. The disciples were learners. And now they're moving into a different phase. See, discipleship, guys, is a process. It is, it is a process of giving yourself for a time, a period of time to be trained or to train others in order to reproduce for future generations. That's really what discipleship is. Our goal is to take a period of time and invest in somebody or a period of time where somebody invests in us, where we grow in our ability to make future disciples so that it's perpetuated right? And there's phases. Now, what would you imagine the first phase would be of discipleship? The first phase of true discipleship is salvation. Salvation is the first phase of discipleship. And if you really want to see how it worked with the disciples, John 1, 35 through 51 is where Andrew, remember Andrew was following John the Baptist, and he went and got Peter and Peter came back, and John the Baptist said, there's a Lamb of God, go follow Him. Remember, Philip, Nathaniel, they, they come together, and, and the, James and John, they start following, but they don't follow completely, because you know what? They go back and start fishing. But they're believers, and that Jesus is the one, because why? John told them He was, and they believed that. Because we know, because they're out on a boat in Matthew 4, what we covered weeks and weeks ago, and Jesus said, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now this time, they move into phase two. That's the training. Phase one, salvation. Phase two is the training. Phase three is OJT. On-the-job training. Where they actually are going out and, and they're, they're doing it, but they're not released to go do it independently yet. And then phase four is where they're actually independent and they're leading others and, and they're doing it all over. So those are the four phases. Now, when you think about the disciples, Dave, were they adequate? Were they adequate? If you were the HR guy for Jesus, all right, 
And he says, Dave, I want you to go out and find me 12 guys. Would these 12 guys have made your list? No. They wouldn't have gotten through the online part. Uh, exactly. <laughs> That's the whole point. They wouldn't have gotten through the online part because they were woefully inadequate. Right? When you think about them, they, they were like a bag of rocks spiritually. They didn't understand. And Jesus would ask them, do you understand? Yes, Jesus, we understand. But then they'd go do something that showed they didn't understand. Right? So they, they, didn't, get, they didn't have spiritual understanding. So how did Jesus deal with that inadequacy? He taught them. He taught them. He instructed them. He was constantly teaching them. That's how we deal with that. None of us in this room are adequate. So how do we deal with that? We, we're taught. We have people that understand, teach us. That's why it's important to get teaching. Teaching is important, but it's not the only part of discipleship. Okay, so what about what, what other inadequacy they have? What about, do you think they had a pride problem? Do men have pride problems? Yeah. Even if you're not famous, you have pride problems. These were guys on a fishing boat. Listen, that was not the most glamorous uh, job in that culture. And so you can imagine as Jesus selected them, what began to happen? Can you just see them walking together with Jesus where Jesus is in front and the guys are going, well, he asked me to do this. Well, he asked me to do that. You know, and even James and John had the audacity to ask their mother, hey, can you get involved and see if we can be the ones sitting on his right and left? They had pride, just like we all do. And, and how did Jesus combat that? He modeled humility. He modeled humility. He, he said, you know what? Um, give, me, give me your feet. Let me wash your feet. Peter, oh, you're not washing my feet. Well, if I don't wash you, Peter, you're not going to be clean. You, oh, okay, wash all of me then. Well, Peter, you don't all need to be clean. You're clean except for your feet. He was always teaching, but he modeled humility. Jesus could have done anything he wanted at any time without these guys, but he was so patient and loving with them. And he trained them and he modeled humility. You know who modeled humility for me? There was a guy in Texas. He was one of our guests on SWAT radio named Jeff Wells. Jeff was a marathoner. He was an uh, incredible marathoner. He won marathons all over the world came in second in the Boston Marathon to Bill Rogers by two seconds. Do you know when I found that kind of stuff out? Was when I was getting ready to interview him for SWAT radio. I just started because I knew he was a runner, but I had no idea of those kind of successes that he had. And do you know that I was with him, worked on staff with him out in Texas. He was the pastor and I was a consultant to their staff. I went on mission trips with him and shared a room with him. We walked together. He was an accountability partner with me for years out there. We walked and had spiritual conversation. And do you know not once did he ever tell me what great accomplishments he had? Do you know he never even told me about almost winning the Boston Marathon or winning these other marathons? In fact, he didn't even tell me he was a Nike runner. He was sponsored by Nike. You don't get to be sponsored by Nike as a runner unless you're upper elite back in that day. He modeled humility. And that's, he, I tell you, he, he made me want to be a humble guy. 
And whenever I start feeling prideful, I think about Jeff. What would he do? Because he modeled that humility for me. That's how you combat pride, is you hang around humble people. So here's the deal. If those are the disciples he he called, he chose, and he commissioned, what does that mean to us? Well, it says in verse 10.1, he says, he called to him his twelve. Do you know you're His? Guys, you are His. He bought you. He owned you. He called you and He chose you. When, when, when you're in the military and you're commissioned, you don't march to your own orders. Could you imagine when I swore my oath to the Marine Corps and I check in to Quantico uh, uh, to go through officer candidate training and they're telling me what I'm going to do? And I'm like, I don't think I want to do that. They would have sent me out of there so fast. I, I wouldn't even have blinked. No, when you raise your right hand and then you're commissioned as an officer, you swear allegiance to the President of the United States and those who are acting on orders from the President of the United States. And in the same way, we are chosen, we're called and commissioned by God. We are under His authority and under His orders. Guys, our life isn't our own. The moment we realize what it's all about and that He's redeemed us, our perspective should not be, well, I'm going to pray and see if you know, I want to do that. You know, Brad, we talk about that a lot, about the idea when opportunities come, well, I don't know if I can do that. The issue is never what I want to do. The issue is what does God want me to do? And we, we, we need a radical re-understanding. I don't even know if that's a word. But a radical re-understanding of what it means to be under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because He chose us, He called us, and He commissioned us. Now listen, when my mother was young, she was in her 20s, she got pregnant six times, and six times she miscarried. Six times. Then she had a stillbirth six months into the process. Then I had an older brother who was born on my birthday one year earlier, September 2nd, 1960, named James Allen McCary. He lived for three days, and then he died. And after my brother died, there in the hospital, my mom cried out to God. She was a believer, and she said, God, give me a child, and I will give that child back to you. She never told me that until after I was ordained as a minister in 1995. But she told me she prayed for me, and she always knew. She said, when you got in the Marine Corps, I knew you weren't going to stay there. I knew, I knew what God was going to do in your life because I, I gave you to Him, and I knew, I saw from the time you were growing up, He had His hand on you. Because every time evangelists would come into our home because they always kept the evangelists that would come preach at the church or the guest pastors. You would sit and talk to them all night. And I just saw what God was doing. And, and when I got in the FBI, she said, I knew you weren't going to be in the FBI long. I just knew what God was going to do. And I said, well, why didn't you ever tell me? She said, because I wanted God to move you. But what God was doing was taking the things, even I was living for me, I wasn't doing, I mean, I wasn't going there because I thought God wanted me to go there. 
He was using, I thought I was doing what I wanted to do, but he would direct me and he was teaching me lessons because why? He chose me, he called me, and he commissioned me. And in Jeremiah 1.5, it says, before we were in the womb, he knew us. And he called us for his purpose. And, and that's what he's saying here. Listen, in verse 1, they're disciples. In verse 2, they're apostles. Big A apostles. Sent ones. The word is apostolos. It means sent. And always in the ancient Greek or the, the common Greek, it meant a naval vessel sent out by a king. That's what it meant. And, and so it, it's somebody on an urgent mission. Sent. Now, the disciples had a very focused mission. And Jesus told them, listen, don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Why? It wasn't that He didn't want to include. We see His interaction with Gentiles. But there's a couple of reasons. One is who was going to most be ready to hear that the Messiah was coming as a Jewish person? They're going to know the Old Testament Scriptures. So He's sending because the Jewish people were getting the Messiah so they could fulfill Genesis 12, where God made a promise to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. They were the vehicle. They were the instrument that was going to take the gospel to the rest of the world. At least they were supposed to be that instrument. And so he says, go to them first. The other reason that he didn't uh, send them to anybody else, they weren't, they were from Galilee. They weren't prepared for cross-cultural ministry. They, they didn't have the, I mean, Jesus was not going to send them into uh the hornet's nest of paganism to talk to Gentiles and to talk to Samaritans. You know, Jesus, look at the interaction Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. Can you imagine Peter trying to deal with that? Peter's still trying to get over talking to a woman. How's he going to deal theologically with the stuff she's throwing at him? So Jesus was not going to disperse them. They had a focus mission. We've got a focus mission. Okay, for, for them, they were to go straight to the Jews. For us, it's to look for the lost and those that are seeking. And to, we are to evangelize and disciple. That's our focus. We are to evangelize and disciple. We, there are some people who say, well, I'm just called to be an evangelist. No. We are to evangelize and disciple. I am an evangelist. I'm telling you. I feel like... Ephesians 4.11, when it talks about an evangel, that is who I am. My heart drips for the lost. When I go through the Scripture, it almost brings me to tears when I, when I think about lost people not knowing my God and my Savior. And, and so, that is our mission to evangelize and disciple. It's the focused mission we have. But we have a clear message. And that clear message is the simplicity of Christ that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11. And it's, he gives us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, what it is. It's that Jesus died for our sins. He was resurrected, seen by over 500 people. And that's the Gospel. That He died for our sins. He was the penalty payment for our sins. And because of what He did, we are in right relationship with God if we turn from trusting in our own righteousness to trusting in what He did. Paul makes that very clear. Ephesians clarifies it even more. In verse 8 and 9, it says what? It says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is God's gift to us. 
That was so foreign to the Jewish people, they thought they had to earn it. Every other religion in the world teaches that. But a lot of people leave out Ephesians 2.10. And you know what that says? It says we are His workmanship created for what? Good works. We are His workmanship. So we have a clear and simple message. And it's the Gospel that we're supposed to be taking. And we guys, we got to carry authentic credentials. He tells them, listen, go out. Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers. Cast out demons. You know why they were to do those things? When Jesus healed people, was it just to authenticate who He was? Was that the only reason He did it? Or did he do you think the compassion of God had anything to do with it? Do you think it broke Jesus' heart when He looked and He saw the devastating results of sin on people's bodies? When He saw people who were uh, lame? People who were dying because of the consequence of sin in the world? Not their own consequence. I'm just talking about the general consequences. Listen, if you want to go back and hear the heart of God, you go back and read through Psalm. Psalm 9.18 says, The needy are not forgotten. Psalm uh, 12.5, I will make them safe. Talking about the needy. Psalm 35.10, I will deliver them. Psalm 140.12, I will bring them justice. I will bring justice to the needy. He cared for needy people. Compassion, guys. Even though you and I don't have the ability to go and put a hand on somebody and say, God, heal like Peter did. What we do have the ability to do is to care for people and to show compassion. We do have the ability to see a changed life as a result of God using us, just like they did. Even though we can't see somebody physically raised from the dead, maybe, you know what we can see? Somebody spiritually raised from the dead. And I've seen that many, many times. I just took a guy over to Israel with me on this trip. Brad met him. The number three, he was number three, not number two, I said. Guy that I thought would never come to Christ with me in the Marine Corps. He's a changed guy, isn't he, Brad? He had no use for God whatsoever. And I've seen a changed life in him. Now he's got three beautiful grown kids. The third one's fixing to get married. All love the Lord. That's a changed life right there. That's just as much a miracle as seeing a physical body come up. Because that's for eternity. Lazarus died again, you know that? But his soul didn't die. Joe's soul is going to be with God forever. And the last thing he says in that authentic uh, creds is he says, listen, you receive without pay, give without pay. In other words, don't be selfish. This is not your stuff. What I'm giving you, the ability to heal, don't go make money off of it. <laughs> don't go give out biblical truth. Do you know it turns my stomach that there are ministers that will not go speak unless a check is written to them before they ever step foot on the uh, stage. I'm not talking a $100 check. I'm talking about unless a $10,000 check is stroked to them, they won't step foot on a stage to preach. That's absurd to me. They don't own this. The, the, the very thing that they feel called to do if they're preaching the Gospel... It's all from God. God changes people's lives. Anything good coming through me related to this is nothing but God. Using this as an instrument, this voice, this mind, 
Whatever it is. I can't put a price tag on that. He says at the end of that, a worker is labor deserves his food. What he's saying there is, listen, he says, don't plan. He told him not to go take a uh, staff, all these things. And what he's saying is we need to display a confident faith and trust. God manages the resources. We need to trust him with it. The problem is for a lot of us, we don't like trusting what God may bring our way. $10,000 to go to my roof. I don't, God, I don't have that money. I'm on, I, don't, I don't want to spend 10000 I was wanting to do this other thing. You think God doesn't know that? He's not surprised by the thing. He manages our resources. So when God takes us through financial uh, challenging times, what we need to be doing is looking to Him and say, God, are you teaching me something here? Are you trying to get my attention? Because that's a lot of times how I get our attention. Or are you redirecting me? Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I should be someplace else. You know, when I lived in Texas, I lived in seven houses in a two-year period because we house set. Because I had a house in Houston that didn't sell. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. But do you know what happened? Those seven houses, seven unbelievers. Every house that I lived in that we house sat was an unbelieving owner that we got to interact with and share the gospel with and talk to them. Why did you adopt? Man, that's, I love the fact that you've got these adopted daughters. Yeah, well, you know why we adopted? Because God led us to. Really? Yeah, how did that happen? And we started a conversation that ended up ultimately leading us to sharing the gospel. Now, they all didn't trust Christ, but they all heard about Christ. That would have never happened had I not gone into those houses. That wouldn't have happened had my house not sold for 18 months. So God manages His resources the way He wants to. And so when we go through trying times, we need to look to Him and say, okay, God, what, what are you trying to do here? How can I serve you in this? And then the last thing is we focus on the receptive. He says, listen, if you go to a house and they receive you, they're worthy, then you leave your blessing and peace there. If they're not, Shake the dust off your feet. And we see in Acts 13, you know, Paul actually shook the dust off. That was a that was a way, it was a cultural thing of saying, I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to be associated with that. And so for us, what's the application there? It's real simple, guys. Satan will do everything to distract you from doing what God's called you to do, which is to make disciples. And so if he can get you so focused on trying to win one person who's... I'm not talking about ignoring people who are genuinely seeking. I'm talking about people who they've heard all the information, they've processed, and they've rejected. And you keep trying to go back to them and go back to them and go back to them. And you spend all your time going back to this person when you've got this other guy over here who's wanting not only to hear, he's wanting to grow so he can be a disciple maker. And it's a management and stewardship of resources. And Jesus says to him, listen, if they don't receive you, shake the dust off. Go, go, go to the house that's going to receive you. It doesn't mean you stop praying for the guy who's lost. It just means you don't let them steal all your time and resources. So bottom line, guys, you're a missionary or mission field. You're either making disciples or you should be a disciple in training. And we make disciples so that they can make disciples.